Mr. Hoffa, Robert Kennedy testified today at the first McClellan Committee hearings on the Cosa Notre. <clears throat> he called for a broader wiretap law. What That's are... why he had a murderer, a dope peddler, on the, the witness stand. So he can push through a wiretap so he can have a greater police state than he already has in this country for a wiretapping. If I want to talk to my wife, my daughter, or my son, or anybody else, I don't need somebody spying on me, and I'm sure everybody in this country feels the same way. Are you questioning the legitimacy of these McClellan Committee hearings? I say that it's nothing more or less than the McClellan Committee hearings to be held to try and again get public sentiment, excitement, to put through a wiretap bill that would be the first step towards a further greater police state in this country. Welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives in histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. I'm your co-host, Peter. What are we doing today, Peter? We're back. We're back to Jimmy. We're back. We're back not the sugar uncle Jimmy. Jimmy Hoffa. Yes. The, the, the big... Ch- Did he ever have a nickname? Did they call him like Jimmy Trucks? The big cheese? I mean, Hoffa is so just straightforwardly right, yeah, iconic. Hoffa, you know, that, yeah. that I think it just stuck okay. with Hoffa. It's just Hoffa. Got it. But yeah, when we left off with non-Michigan, Jimmy, mm-hmm. with, with big Jim Hoffa, we had left off in the 1950s and, and we touched somewhat on the 1960s and we we did a kind of like flyover view of what the that empire of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters looked like in all of its different progressive tendencies and reactionary tendencies and Hoffa's own role in trying to really bring these kind of different tendencies pulling apart together. But today, we're going to talk about a nonstop quasi-terroristic legal campaign to put Hoffa in prison, Mm -hmm. to identify him as the bad guy, the source of all evil, the enemy within, as Robert F. Kennedy said, and put him in prison, and why they wanted to put him in prison Mm. so much. Uh, When we left off... Not just just get him not in charge of the Teamsters anymore. Right, although they tried that, like, multiple times. Oh, I see. Yeah, they tried putting the Teamsters into trusteeship, and they thought Mm. that they could kind of put thumb on the scale, the federal government, I mean, put the thumb on the scales Mm. of the election, that he wouldn't get elected, instead he got elected with a massive majority mm-hmm. including when it was under trusteeship and un- mm-hmm. under like legal observers and all of that they tried to make sure he wouldn't be elected they mm-hmm. kicked him out kicked the teamsters out of the afl-cio mm-hmm. uh, that didn't do the trick because he was extremely beloved by the constituent workers because mm-hmm. he delivered the goods mm-hmm. and he would he had no qualms about using strikes and the threat of strikes and force to get that mm-hmm. but as we said on the last episode the kennedy brothers and this is usually presented as kind of like a personal vendetta especially above robert kennedy a kind of a uh, buttoned up moralistic boy scout good guy against a sleazy amoral does anything it takes to get the goods bad guy and really i think we peel back a layer with the last episode to show that robert f kennedy 
you know, primarily in part due to his ambitions and, you know, I'm sure personal animosity went into it and feeling like he was the good guy prosecutor was really just the front, the face of a joint effort by anti-labor and just bastard Jim Crow congressmen and senators to neutralize the power of the Teamsters Union, which was a political power and it was an economic power. And that power continued to increase throughout these legal campaigns against Hoffa. Uh, should probably take a moment, of course, to acknowledge some of our sources on this episode, which is a sprawling episode. So buckle up, listeners. It, we might even have to split it into two parts here. My sources were a incredibly good and just readable essay called The Hoffa Trial by Fred J. Cook, a legal commentator and writer who loved doing these kind of political intrigue type cases uh, for The Nation magazine from 1964. Kennedy Justice by the late great Victor Navasky, one-time editor of The Nation magazine, and the review of Kennedy Justice by Michael the Tiger, Tiger, mm. in the New York Review of Books. And uh, a Incredible and in much newer book, The Rise and Fall of Nashville Lawyer Tommy Osborne by William Tabak, as well as, of course, The Trials of Jimmy Hoffa by you-know-who, Jimmy Hoffa, and a ton of newspaper archives and court opinions, including Hoffa v. U.S. and the dissenting opinion written by Justice William Brennan. Yep, we went to uh, we went we went to the archives, folks. Or by we, I mean I. So. <laughs> I might be the officially trained historian, but that's you know. I'm, I'm the gopher. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, how did Hoffa get taken down? How did he get put in prison? Because if you don't know how he got put in prison, you don't know why it mattered that he got out and was such a dangerous force to get out. Mm-hmm. So let's take everyone back a little bit, back in time. For another overview segment, the year is 1960. Jimmy Hoffa is master of America's transportation system. Courtrooms are battlefields. Cue mm. Napoleon. Yeah. Uh, at least that's the, that's the caption that's playing over the heads, you know, of, mm-hmm. of Bobby Kennedy and anti-labor Jim Crow senators who are backing him in the next six years in their vendetta of trials, investigations, uh, and some really nefarious stuff against Jimmy Hoffa. So this episode is going to be about how at the height of his power, and this was the absolute height of Hoffa's power, he came under the most relentless assault using courtroom law, indictments, grand juries, investigations of any labor leader I am aware of. Hmm. Short of just pulling out the stakes and having him killed, and for later, hmm. this is the most force of the state I have seen bear against one labor leader. If it weren't specifically forbidden in the Constitution, maybe they would have get done a bill of attainder. Yeah, yeah, that's basically basically where they're at. Uh, but this is not a you know clean story, uh, as I said, of do-gooder prosecutors and corrupt union bureaucrats either. It is an absolute labyrinth of, frankly, scary Elroy-esque mercenary spies and counter-spies you know, blasting cigarettes with reels of tape recording in the background, wiremen tapping and finding taps of other people, uh, slack-jawed, racist, crooked cops doing extortion for the government, a pedophile double agent who gets investigated for maybe having a hand in the Kennedy assassination, and smiling, well-paid members of the bar, mm. lawyers, yeah, standing astride the entire labyrinthine mess yeah we're used to in you know crime dramas the lawyer unless it's specifically a courtroom drama 
lawyers being like ancillary to the main action, right? It's yeah. the cops, it's the criminals. But people, I think, often don't appreciate uh, how important lawyers are to the ongoing action. Yeah, and in this case, they're like commanders standing astride an army of goons and wiremen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's let's go back a sec, shall we? Uh, so where we left off partly was Hoffa in the late six, er, late fifties and early sixties. He's best friends with, uh, as you know, some call them backsliding socialist Harold Gibbons. Mm. Frankly, still socialist Harold Gibbons. Mm -hmm. And their roommates in Washington, D.C. Hoffa operates out of a big, fat Teamsters building called the Marble Palace, which you know, is supposed to be so grand to literally impress congressmen with, like, the Teamsters are to be taken seriously. Yes. We're not some some guys just hanging out in the local that you can, you know, come in and come out. You come to the Marble Palace and you ask for our support. Mm. But Harold Gibbons and Hoffa are roommates in an apartment in Washington. There's actually even like a like a I think it was a Time magazine profile of them where like Bert and Ernie in like bathrobes, they're like sitting around their apartment having tea because Hoffa doesn't do coffee mm. and hanging out. Doesn't want to be overstimulated. Yeah. And needless to say, of course, that bothers a lot of the right-wing establishment in Washington, particularly these Jim Crow senators, mm -hmm. because Hoffa's apparently closest buddy, his his Ernie to Hoffa's Bert, mm. is this like ex-Trotskyist mm. like rabble-rouser in mm. St. Louis who wants to build a social democratic United States. Mm -hmm. So do, do we know whether they were, you know, whether he was a good roommate? He's, he seems to have been a good roommate, but they had strained relations as time went on because Harold Gibbons, him and Alpha see eye to eye on the priorities of the Team Series Union. Mm -hmm. And Alpha loves using Harold Gibbons as like also like a, a polite and nice and intellectual face to go to places like Europe and, mm -hmm. you know, California to go deal with those hoity-toity people. Right. But Harold Gibbons doesn't really just do what Hoffa says, unlike right. a lot of more corrupt Hoffa flunkies who are happy to just say the words and nod the nods mm -hmm. in order to get Hoffa's approval and favor. So they they do have strained relations as time goes on. Mm -hmm. He's like the person that Hoffa trusts, but often doesn't like because he mm -hmm. doesn't just bow down to Hoffa. Interestingly, this time Hoffa also gets someone who the congressional committees, the McClellan committee in particular, really identify as a, as a dangerous character named mm -hmm. Edward Chaffetz. Mm -hmm. He became a special advisor uh, as as the title was to Hoffa during this time, he was a labor organizer who became a labor organizer after a trip in the night in 1933 to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, mm. the Soviet Union. And when he came back, joined the CF the CIO, and became close with John Lewis, the head of the CIO, and mm. even named his son John Lewis Chaffetz. Oh wow. Uh, he joined the Communist Party and then like left at some point uh -huh. when it became like too much heat to do that. Yeah. But in spite of the fact that, you know, Communist Party members and one time Communist Party members getting were pretty much blacklisted left and right. Yeah, we're getting blacklisted left and right. This guy had no problem just getting a job as a special advisor to Hoffa. Interesting. So Hoffa's continued uh like it, it, the continued racketeer communist alliance. Yeah. Uh goes on with Hoffa and this freaks out the senators. They they even issue a report in 1958, which I'll get to. But this guy Chaffetz, he becomes an industrial relations consultant, and he huh. joins the law firm of one Edward Bennett Williams. Okay. And I get a, my eyes even glaze over as a lawyer when I, you know, talk up 
different lawyers or they're seen as like, you know, Titans, but Edward Bennett Williams was, he was the man. He, he, he really, if you want, if you were being prosecuted for some kind of political crime mm-hmm. or um, serious high scandal, mm-hmm. particularly in Washington, DC, or if you needed something to take up the Supreme Court, Edward Bennett Williams was the guy. Mm-hmm. He could turn a case entirely on its head. And not in some like kind of like slick talking uh, Texas lawyer like Percy Foreman, racehorse Haynes way, or like mm-hmm. you know like um, Bob Durst lawyer in in the Jinx, who's just mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know. Yeah, it Edward Bennett Williams had that like calm, cool, intellectual way of gently explaining to someone that like this this is the reality of what happened, mm-hmm. and to the point where you just can't doubt anymore. And he loved recruiting into his firm, like red lawyers who were pretty much blacklisted from other places. One of Edward Bennett Williams' greatest disciples or greatest students um, was Michael Tiger. Wow. Who later becomes attorney for Angela Davis, um, becomes the attorney when practically no one else wanted the job of Terry Nichols Mm. and practically walked him out. Wow. And is the author of a great slim volume called Law and the Rise of Capitalism because Michael Tiger was an open Marxist the wow. whole time. He was originally going to get a Supreme Court job, yeah. but the FBI investigated his and background. You've got to figure a guy like this, you know, hiring all these lawyers and giving them the chance to do the kind of law that they'd be interested in would have like fierce loyalty yeah. from these people and get the best work. Yeah, exactly. Really interesting. So, you know, Edward Bennett Williams like liberal-ish guy with a lot of conservative friends, but he ran a he ran a shop full of full of reds as Congress would see it. Yeah. And hmm. he was also Hoffa's preferred lawyer and lover. Interesting. On the same principle. Yeah. So the thing that Hoffa does to really raise eyebrows and I think is the thing that set in motion many of these prosecutions. Cause like with most of these prosecutions, they're either like stings like setups mm-hmm. or they're like combing through massive amounts of records to try to find something that Hoffa did wrong mm-hmm. and Hoffa is a very careful person mm-hmm. <laughs> because but doesn't want to get caught and he's he has enough money and power to be able to get legal consultants to know exactly the line you right. go up to and not cross yeah he's an experienced player of the game like yeah. he knows it's like how you know apparently i don't really know sports that well but apparently there are just some positions in team sports where part of it is just knowing how to cheat in a way that you won't screw screw over your team right so the the thing i've been leading up to is hoffa tries to make a deal with other radical it's some of the very radical trade union leaders Mm -hmm. to effectively have a council that would control all u.s transportation Mm -hmm. and would be able to demand whatever rates or benefits they wanted uh he made a deal specifically with harry bridges at this time in 1958 harry bridges was the australian born leader of the international longshoremen and warehouse workers union and was in open class struggle marxist um and widely alleged member of the communist party uh, he was at least a fellow traveler. And I know there's a great, great biography that came out recently of him, um, which I have to read. And we probably should do an article on Harry Bridges because yeah, next, next, yeah, next, yeah. 
next to Hoffa, Harry Bridges probably gets like the the runner-up award for the most politically motivated prosecutions at deportation mm. hearings. Mm. I think there were like five or six different prosecutions of Harry Bridges for supposedly like lying on some immigration form or, or right. something. And they could they could deport him because he was from Australia. Right. And they couldn't deport Hoffa because yeah, he's from he's from America. He's from the US of A. Yeah. I'm 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 sure they would have loved to try. So RFK, you know, beloved of liberals, really tried to tar Hoffa with his relationship with Harry Bridges. He questioned him about it repeatedly at McClellan committee hearings. And Hoffa was trying to form an agreement with Harry Bridges, as well as uh, the members of the National Maritime Union, the International Longshoremen's Association, to basically bring every single bit of cargo from, you know, when it arrives in a port in San Francisco to when it gets unloaded to when it gets transported off to St. Louis, to when it gets transported up to New York uh, and unloaded in another warehouse in New York, every single step of the way being done by members of this conference mm. of transportation workers so that at no time could there be a worker who wasn't represented by a union, mm. had a shop steward, had rights and had the ability to, to really strike and bring the boss to a heel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty amazing thing. On his end, he was also hoping to use this leverage, this power to get, to fulfill kind of his dream, which is to get a national master freight agreement where every single trucker in the United States has a wage rate that's spelled out kind of like a constitution for, for truckers and freight unloaders and everything, regardless of whether they were in like Montgomery, Alabama, or, you know, in a high wage place like Seattle, mm -hmm. you know, one of the kind of vulnerabilities of Hoffa and his union, though, was in the midst of all of this prosperity, as they're racking up collective bargaining agreements and so on, tons of money is going into their pension fund. Now, the pension fund has like different regional pension funds. The, the really big one is called the Central States Pension Fund, mm -hmm. uh, CSPF, and this fund is supposed to be run by a kind of a joint council of management and labor. So there's like a whole set of like lawyers and industry leaders. I think there's like 12 of them on each side who are supposed to be on one side representing management mm -hmm. and have been nominated as part of like a collective bargaining agreement with all of these trucking companies. Right. And because the managers... Well, well go ahead. Go ahead with this. Well, the, everyone who's... Uh, every one of these bosses who pays like have like some into the fund mm -hmm. as part of the union agreements they want some kind of like representation at the table yes. as to how the fund's money was invested mm -hmm. they have half of the the standing committee that runs that mm -hmm. ibt people teamsters have the other half mm -hmm. and how it's supposed to be run is essentially like they're supposed to hire on professional managers who mm -hmm. invested to get x return y amount of return mm -hmm. in order that teamsters have a nice pension at retirement. At this time, it's actually like fairly low. Um, and it widely varies as to like whether your pension is being properly uh, dispersed, what if you're in like, say like Anthony Provenzano's local mm -hmm. in New Jersey, as opposed to like a really nice clean local like yeah. Harold Givens is mm -hmm. or half his own local of local 299 in, mm -hmm. in Detroit. How it's actually run, you know, according to the examination that was done uh, by these to Harvard professors who kind of went around with Hoffa is it was kind of a mess. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of people, uh, swindlers and mm -hmm. random company guys and people trying to open up like roadside hotels and so on 
would just approach Hoffa and other members of the board with their ideas. They'd be like, you guys should invest in this. Mm -hmm. And the pension fund as a result became kind of like, like kind of like a shadow investment bank that, and it gets characterized as like, you know, they were doing payoffs Mm -hmm. and, and there was lots of corruption. And there's no doubt that in some way Hoffa and these other guys were like taking a cut off these mm-hmm. investments some way. Like that happened for sure. sure. Um, probably like a payoff to get approval for the loan. But the strange thing about it is, is that this pension fund did get a lot of money from yeah. its investment, partly because like Hoffa knew like what industries were growing right. because he had because all these he had truckers. Control over the trucking. Yeah. So he like his trucker, like one some of their first investments were in like roadside hotels, roadside amusement, roadside malls food and stuff. And right? malls. Um in Florida, right? We'll and Florida. Florida. Like Hoffa thought Florida was going to blow up. And, and all of and, these are correct. Yeah. Um, but most of these people who were like pitching these projects were like shady guys. Mm, yeah. Um, who would not be getting approval from a normal bank. So on the one hand, they were building up places like Las Vegas and mm, so on. And there yeah. was mobbed up money involved and all that. On the other hand, Megas makes a lot of fucking money. Mm-hmm. So Hoffa's case was always like, you know, you say I'm just personally directing all of these bad decisions, but like my my union members haven't lost a dime. Yeah. They've gained a lot from my crazy. Uh, at, at one point, uh, there's an account uh, that Hoffa was like giving a, a speech at a, at a conference of like academics mm-hmm. on like labor relations. And then all of a sudden, you know, one of his flunkies like runs up with a phone. It's like, Mr. Hoffa, you have to take this call. And he just takes a call on stage and starts like yelling at the guy about whether to approve a loan or not. Huh. He's like, wait, what's, <laughs> what's the return on investment here? Amazing. What's the grass? <laughs> How much is he putting up? Mm. And then like hangs up the phone. So like a lot of the decisions were like personally done by Hoffa. Yeah. And that's ultimately how some of it just gets like hung around his neck. Yeah. Right. Because they can say, you were the master of this. So if there was any corruption, it's on you. Yeah. And also they 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 saw fit to kind of recharacterize this nonpartisan employer-employee board that's in the charge of the Central States Pension Fund as basically just like a room full of yes men and then Hoffa telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Which if Hoffa, you know, exercises pull, like that would probably be the case, but I don't think he managed like every decision mm-hmm. at all. Interesting. But as all this is going on he is getting investigated and indicted nonstop. That started with the McClellan Committee. And we saw in the last episode how even in as early as the early 50s, Harold Givens, who it was completely clean, was getting investigated and grand jury indictments were being thrown against him with the McClellan Committee. And then later when Kennedy gets elected and puts Robert F. Kennedy in charge of the Justice Department, they form a squad called the Get Hoffa Squad of about a dozen lawyers and a much larger army of Department of Justice investigators and FBI agents that are personally detailed to their cases. And can JFK authorize this direct? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he he knew full well what was going on that there was a get Hoffa squad, mm. that's in quotes, yeah. at the Justice Department. And I think it's important to take a, a little bit of a side for you know, a real character. Like, mm. in, in my opinion, the character, much more so than Robert F. Kennedy himself on the get Hoffa squad which is a guy named Walter Sheridan. Hmm. Walter Sheridan is like the spooky, like athletically built, like gray-eyed, soft-spoken villain of this whole squad. Hmm. I don't think there's any other way to characterize him. He's, even at this point, having read a lot about him and having read through interviews with him, he's still like pretty much a mystery to me. Mm-hmm. 
but we can say a few things about him. He worked for the Office of Naval Intelligence in World War II, doing like cryptographic transmissions and also like what appears to have been like spy catching stuff mm. for the ONI during World War II and just afterwards. Then he went to the FBI, Hoover's mm. FBI, where they put him on, again, uh, basically Red Squad stuff. Mm. He was renowned at the time within the FBI for being able to turn people into informants to exercise leverage on them, whether that was like, like them being personally friendly with him or blackmail or the threat of indictment and squeezing these people and turning them basically into his pawns. Mm. And even at the FBI at the time when, you know, like, I think they were estimating like a third of the existing communist party was like FBI informants. They were even then were surprised at how well Walter Sheridan managed to turn these guys into his willing informants, feeding him back information all the time. He said he left the FBI because like they weren't focusing enough on mob stuff, which seems to have been like the the refrain of a lot of most people say. Yeah, but that doesn't really track with what Walter Sheridan does next, which right. is he after saying like I'm leaving the FBI's red squad because I you know I don't think Hoover's focusing enough on the mob. He then, with glowing marks from the FBI, goes to the National Security Agency mm. and works in their Office of Security, mm. which is trying to be a spy catcher at the National Security Agency. <laughs> he also maintains loads of contacts with and like fellow NSA people because at this time it's an absolutely like secretive existence, yeah. not admitted. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, pretty much like even through like told James Bamford's The Puzzle Palace, mm. it's barely noticed. Yeah. So he works in their office of security, essentially investigating members of the NSA and turning people into informants in the NSA for three years, probably working on, like we can imagine, Soviet penetration, mm -hmm. right? And while he's still working with the NSA, he gets reached out to, to see if he'll come on as a McClellan Committee investigator mm -hmm. working for RFK directly. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, the real... Privacy be damned, trust in people be damned, like you know, trust in society be damned, like constitutional rights be damned. All that, all those aspects of like, got to catch the communist counter espionage are brought over to just investigating a labor leader. Mm -hmm. So they bring in an NSA agent. Yeah, I mean, he's he's like a he's like a master spook. Like, yeah, that's that's wild. So he employs a lot of counterintelligence act tactics that he learned in the FBI and in the NSA and in the ONI mm. to the end of getting Hoffa. And he saw Hoffa as like a personally evil enemy. Mm. Sheridan at one point had an audience of Tennessee lawyers who were kind of like welcoming him to town. Uh, he, even though he wasn't a lawyer, he was kind of seen like in the mm. company of lawyers a lot. He was a law school dropout himself. Mm. But he told them, quote, throw away your ethics books until Hoffa's in prison. Mm. Uh, Sheridan, as uh, William Tabak says, the, the the truth is like the tactics that Sheridan used against Hoffa were used once against communist, mm -hmm. radical trade unionists, and Reds of all stripes. But the massive escalation in legal warfare, where they're really bringing to bear armies of spies, mm -hmm. walls of wiretaps, mm -hmm. and so on, it really happens because Hoffa, for once, is like the first opponent that he that a guy like Sheridan's run across. Who has money of his own and yeah. a complete willingness to fight back? Yeah, there's one of you need the titular lawyers' guns and money. Yeah, yeah, he's got them all. Yeah, and in this 
battle it's interesting because like one of Hoffa's like former um supporters when he was interviewed he's like 80 something when he's interviewed it's like yeah the fbi were tapping us so we thought you know we should tap them back so we mm. tapped the fbi oh, amazing <laughs> it's these guys like you know dressed up like phone, like phone repairmen going to the fbi office just tapping the fbi and find out what they're talking about mm. yeah. you know live by the sword yeah yeah so hoffa gets uh frankly like it's hard for historians to keep track of the number of investigations and indictments that mm-hmm. were thrown against them just even between 1955 and 1965, these 10 years. Mm-hmm. The consensus seems to be about a dozen times a prosecutor got a grand jury to indict Hoffa and that on five of these occasions, these indictments survived long enough to not be dismissed um, for a lack of evidence mm-hmm. or for illegal tactics and dismissed by a judge in federal court. And one of those trials was tried twice Mm. after Hoppe got a hung jury. But we'll start out in 1957. So at this time, Hoppe's not even president of the Teamsters Union Mm. as a whole yet. But I think it's an important case because it's the first real taste of like the the sting versus sting aspects Mm -hmm. of this, where Hoppe has his own guys, his own wiremen wiring things up, his own spies, and Sheridan and his gang are running their own people. Mm-hmm. And the thing about this spy aspect is that, that people need to understand is that the goal of someone like Sheridan is not necessarily like, I'm going to put someone in there until they honestly report something illegal. Mm-hmm. It's how can I put someone in such a close position at such a time that I can say that something illegal was said to them? Mm. or construct out of their presence Mm -hmm. in Hoffa's presence that something illegal occurred. A spy in a close and confidential and trusted position gives a prosecutor the option. It's like David Greenglass on the Rosenberg case. You know, it gives them the option of saying, yeah, I mean, I was with him on this day and he told me that he did this crime. Mm. And if you have leverage on that person, you can turn them into a perjurer. Mm. That's not to say all of it's perjury, but you can begin to manufacture cases much more easily if you have those spots mm. or if you have those recordings if you're tapping you can bring up which recordings you want to and dump the ones you don't mm-hmm. so with this 1957 case the mcclellan committee is still in session robert f kennedy is their chief counsel and walter sheridan is his main dude mm-hmm. the allegation here was pretty simple hoffa was, and this is how the allegation goes, was approached by an attorney named John Cy Chasty. I know it says Chasty, but that's apparently how you say it. It's Chasty. 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 And Chasty, by his own account, was a simple New York lawyer mm-hmm. who was recruited by one of Hoffa's other lawyers. Mm-hmm. And the assignment that Hoffa's lawyer gave Chasty, according to Chasty, was to infiltrate the McClellan Committee on Labor Racketeering and spy in the McClellan Committee for Hoffa. Mm-hmm. Like in like in American tabloid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much straight up. Yeah. Um, Chasty then turned to the FBI and said, oh, my God, I don't know what happened. I've been recruited by Hoffa to spy on the McClellan committee. This could put my bar card and everything in danger. What do mm-hmm. I do? And so the FBI set up a sting operation where Chasty says that he would give McClellan committee secret documents to Jimmy Hoffa. Mm-hmm. Like Jimmy Hoffa personally. Yeah. in exchange for $2,000. Hmm. So just, I've got the documents, hand them over $2,000. Hmm. The FBI actually 
arrange this meetup in their own account. And then Hoffa was, you know, photographed getting a file of documents and handing over $2,000. Mm-hmm. Seems like a pretty straight up case, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hoffa's account was very different. Hoffa, in his defense, claimed that Chasty offered to help counsel witnesses before the committee and then report back what those witnesses were saying. The smoking gun, like cash for committee documents meeting was, Hoffa thought, just a handoff by Chasty of legal papers and memoranda about these witnesses that he prepared for Hoffa mm. in exchange for a duly agreed upon legal fee of $2,000. Mm. So Hoffa turned to his kind of hired gun in the courtroom on this case, Edward Bennett Williams, the guy. Yeah. And as I said before, literally one of the greatest lawyer trial lawyers in history. Uh, RFK, Robert F. Kennedy claimed... Also one of the great trial lawyers, right? No. Oh, RFK doesn't try any of these cases. No shit. No shit. I kind of assumed. Yeah. So yeah, RFK tried none of these cases. He assigned probably like the best and the brightest DC prosecutor you could find. Mm -hmm. I forgot his name. But this was not that hard a case to beat. Mm. Hoffa literally took the stand his own defense in this case. And generally speaking, that's not something you want to do, even when your client is flat out innocent, because Mm -hmm. they might say the wrong thing to give the jury the wrong impression, and then they end up in prison. Yeah. Walter Sheridan, uh, for his part, uh, blamed the verdict on basically on black people. This was a D.C. jury. Hmm. And so it had a lot of African-Americans. Yeah. And uh, in the middle of the trial, Joe Lewis, like world champion boxer Joe Lewis, uh, comes in and shakes hands with Jimmy Hoffa. Hmm. And Hoffa maintains that it was was because like Joe Lewis is a friend of mine. Yeah. And uh, Sheridan you know, tried to press the case and, and I think leaked to the press like multiple times that Joe Lewis had clearly been paid to influence the jury because in his opinion, an African-American jury in DC, just upon seeing that world champion Joe Lewis Joe would just be like, well, if Joe Lewis yeah, thinks, then obviously he's okay. Yeah, I'm not going to consider these evidence at all. It's so, Joe Lewis's friend. Yeah. No, Joe Lewis apparently was like dating Hoffa's like co-counsel at the time who was an African-American woman. Interesting. Yeah. So this case was honestly not that hard to beat because basically just Chasty says Hoffa's people came to me and hired me. Hoffa says, seems like Chasty came to us. Mm-hmm. And it was like basically a sting from the beginning that Chasty was trying to set Hoffa up and say, I'm going to give you some legal papers. While And then later on, that would be presented as I'm giving McClellan committee papers. Yeah. As Hoffa's still being like called up to testify before the McClellan committee, they're still grilling him at this time. Mm. So I found weirdly one development on this case in perspective that has not been commented on in any books, mm. which is Chasty himself was a spook. Yeah. Uh, Chasty, the like goody two shoes New York lawyer who got wrapped up with Hoffa and says he went to the FBI. Wrong. Mm. Chasty works for the CIA. Oh. So in Chasey's obituary, says, after he retired at 87 in 1994, he told his family that in the 60s and 70s, he had been a contract employee of the Central Intelligence Agency. The obituary also noted his ties as a New York lawyer to relatives and, by extension, also did some business for Murder, Inc. head Albert Anastasia. Mm Mm-hmm who was assassinated the year after this trial. So I'm not saying that Chasey like was a CIA like flunky at the time of this trial. That that Langley like loaned them a guy. Yeah. It's not that. 
No, uh, I, I just think that there's good reason to believe that he was a mob-connected wannabe spy, mm-hmm. a contractor, if you will, who liked espionage and simply like kept going post-World War II. Mm. And he was planted in Hoffa's camp. Because otherwise, frankly, it's hard to make sense of this guy's actions or his life. Um, and also, you know, as we talked about in our um, our patron-only episode, I know, Underworld Theory, there's it's not just an underworld who uh, of people who want to be and uh, and offer themselves up as intelligence assets it's not just you know surly you know gun-toting right guys it's also lawyers yeah um it's also people like chasey who like want to be spy want to pretend they're james bond right you know? and apparently you know kind of was if he was working in the through the 60s and the 70s mm. for the cia as a contract agent i mean who knows what he was doing yeah which brings us to 57 and 58 Trial number two. Trial two. The the wiretap case. Mm -hmm. And this is something I wanted your opinion on because you just read a book about wiremen, right? Yeah, yeah. I read uh, I read the Enchanters. The the, uh, the new Elroy. Yeah, the new Elroy. I mean, you know, we have had some discussion about talking a little bit less about James Elroy and my suspending the rule. But we're suspending the rule. Uh, yeah, I read his latest novel, The Enchanters. It's a late era Elroy novel, which means that. It's uh, the kind of thing you will like if it is the kind of thing you will like, but you probably won't like it as much as Underworld USA. Yeah, uh, that's kind of seems to be the general consensus of Elroy heads that his new novels are uh, admirable but not quite the same. And I agree with that, though I do think that there's more going on that that a strict like why isn't he doing more politics read ignores and you could read about that in my newsletter melendi avenue review um nice pitch yeah hell yeah that's what i like but uh, yeah the new the plot actually I... starts with hoffa yeah the plot starts with jimmy hoffa contracting real life uh you know underworld character freddie otash yep uh, former LA, former Marine, former LA cop, local boy, Boston boy, go out to the West Coast. Maybe not Boston, but Massachusetts. I think North Shore. Yeah. But um, goes out, uh, Lebanese American, goes out. Uh, he's a little cop for a little bit, but then he becomes private eye to the stars, uh, shakedown artist, blackmailer, uh, collector of dirt for tabloids like confidential a real elrovian character yeah uh so a couple he's written a couple of novels now from the otash perspective uh hoffa is hiring otash to wire up some pads and uh catch the kennedy brothers doing dirt including doing the dirty to marilyn monroe who winds up being kind of the center of the novel in many ways Though not in ways you might expect. Again, see Melendi Avenue review. Yeah, uh, but that that's that's a wireman, a guy who who, yep. who is a specialist in these electronic surveillance techniques, which include two very different things: bugging, which is you insert electronic, you know, usually radio controlled device at this time, and at this time, you know, the bugs are getting like smaller and smaller as time goes on, the fifties into the sixties. But they have to have like a little transistor in them, mm-hmm. and there's a you have to listen to them with a certain range. So there's like guy yep. who has to be in a car with yep. the reels or, turning, or you have to secure some real estate nearby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you need a power source. Yeah, or you leave a recorder in a nearby place, and you hope it works. Yeah, there's lots of ins and outs, and of course, Elroy loves that stuff. So. Whereas that wiretapping is basically you you implant a split line either mm-hmm. directly into someone's phone 
or on the nearby telephone line that runs to their house. Mm -hmm. And this case, this second trial of Jimmy Hoffa is kind of about both because it's illegal to do those things in many states. Yes. Uh, actually, all states at the time. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it started in 1957 and Hoffa was charged with, ironically, uh, attempting to plant telephone taps on members of Local 299 to monitor them. Mm. And I say ironically because Hoffa was, of course, being tapped like pretty much right. everywhere he went in Local 299. He, like if he was tapping those phones, he literally would have to like remove bugs and put yeah. his own bugs right. in. And 299, that was the, was that the really crooked one in New Jersey? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, 299 was his, was Hoffa's yes. own local oh, okay. in Detroit. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. I lose track of them. Partly crooked for other reasons. Yeah, you're thinking of local 560. Yes. Tony Provenzano. But he was charged with attempting to do these telephone taps. And Owen Burt Brennan, who's one of like Hoffa's day ones from all the way back in episode two, or episode one rather, uh, also local 299, was charged. And these were alleged to have happened in 1953. Mm. And the case got its start from like a whole other line where the McClellan Committee RFK being counsel was questioning Jimmy Hoffa. And supposedly Hoffa and his local bought something from New York racketeer Johnny Dio. We talked mm -hmm. about in the last episode, it set up all these like paper fake locals mm -hmm. um, that helped out Hoffa get elected. The something that Hoffa supposedly bought was supposed to be bugs, uh, which were called mini phones, M-I-N-I-F-O-N-S. Mm -hmm. uh, but it led the investigators to look further into whether Hoffa did other wiretapping mm. type activities and led them to a guy named Bernard Spindel. Now, Bernard Spindel was a very public figure at the time. He was the leading expert everyone would talk about, including the media, on wiretapping. Mm -hmm. He was like the consummate wire, wire man hired by Hoffa via Johnny Dio to come over and bring the mini phone bugs to Hoffa. At mm. least that was the charge. I have a little quote from uh, Bernard Spindel who's also a character in The Enchanters. They use his name as, if I remember right, they use his name as, uh, yeah, the character. Yeah, much like Otash or whoever else as the guy that they sent along to help wire up Marilyn Monroe's apartment. Yeah, because at, at the time, he was like literally considered just the best guy to do mm -hmm. any type of wiretapping. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm a wiretapper. I'm also an electronic eavesdropper. I practice an art which has progressed so far in the last 10 years that few people, if any, are entirely safe from the prying ears of snoopers like me. Hmm. I wonder if uh, if he partially inspired like Gene Hackman in the conversation or whatever. I, I think that's absolutely the case. He put out a, a book, which is well out of print now, where he kind of as a reflective intellectual is thinking about the implications of his job as a wiretapper mm. and how it's just getting better and better and better and easier and easier to do. And he sees it as essentially like the electronics that surround us in the world have actually penetrated within so much that no one is safe from anyone. And the, the walls that previously kept out government mm. and private companies and, you know, nosy neighbors and so on are eroding away mm. in a way that, that, is impossible to ignore. And one would think, I guess, the only way to stop them is the law and prosecution and the right. regulation, basically. The reason for Spindel being hired is obvious. He was the best known wireman. So in 1955, 
as Hoffa was being periodically grilled by the McClellan Committee, Spindale actually came by Congress as an expert in hearings on wiretapping electronic surveillance. He actually showed all these congressmen various wiretapping devices, <laughs> and they ate that shit up. Oh, I believe it. Yeah, yeah they love props. So cool. But this case was interesting. So the allegation and the evidence was that uh, a former New York state trooper and uh, pay attention to this one audience, state trooper and former state trooper is going to be a pattern with all of the trials that follow here. Yeah, they were, they were, the state troopers are famously, we might've talked about this at the peak skill thing, but they're famously reactionary, even by cop standards. Yeah. uh, Founded to be kind of, uh, you know, go-to guys for strike breaking and modeled after European cavalry, which did the same thing in Europe. The aristocratic branch. Yeah, they're they're modeled they're modeled after John Darms, mm-hmm. right? And uh, they they're militarily trained and militarily disciplined, which has an effect on who joins the state police versus right. who joins like their local police right. department. You like going to work every day, looking like you dress like you got to invade Poland. <laughs> um, but yes, former New York State Trooper, and who knows, maybe he was at the Big School riot, Rudolph Dulicky said that on July 6th to July 10th of 1953, he was at Hoffa's own local 299 at the Union Hall to hook up the wires with Bernard Spindell there. And what's more, Hoffa came in and said, oh, like, this is how you're doing it. Oh, good. The taps are like basically inspected to see that everything was being done well. And, you know, Hoffa like did a lot personally but also this would seem to be kind of stupid because if you have Bernard Spindell there, like, why do you have the state trooper? Mm. Yeah. What's what good? It, it, is he yeah. just there to like help staple like the, the things that go the wall, like break down the drywall or whatever? Yeah. Like, come on. The greatest expert. And then like a, like a schmuck. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and like, did, was Hoffa in the habit of hiring cops to do stuff? Not yeah, really. I mean, I figured maybe um, some. I mean, most. I mean, he did bring on cops for some things. It's mostly his lawyers who brought on cops. Yeah. Um, but that becomes a repeated problem here is, you know, if you didn't have these cops around. Right. You wouldn't have any problems. Right. And, and the, he the, has the, his own guys. Like, he, he has, has his own guys. boots. And the truth is, like, well, one thing that comes out of, like, any of the Hoffa autobiographies, whether it's, like, the trials of Jimmy Hoffa or the Hoffa in his own words, is that. Hoffa loves unionizing cops and he feels for their plight mm. as working class. Yeah, people. I'm not saying. But he's Hoffa like... also fucking hates cops. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying he's like a, you know, fucking abolish the police guy. I'm just saying that it seems unlikely he would hire cops to do sensitive stuff like that when he already has people with most of the skills who are loyal to him. Yeah. He basically sees cops instinctively as like a potential enemy. So yeah. this story is a little weird from the beginning. But Hoffa's defense was complete denial and alibi. In other words, you say I was there when you wired this thing up. Actually, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Hoffa maintained that he hired Spindell, Bernard Spindell, to check his offices for bugs and electronic taps because he believed he was being monitored and surreptitiously mm-hmm. tapped by authorities. I mean, true. <laughs> so was this also true. done in the D.C. courts? No, this was done up in Michigan. I see. Yeah. And and so the Get Hoffa squad operating out of the Department of Justice is feeding these cases yes. to state governments. That's exactly right. Gotcha. Right. It is a it is a network with the hub in DC. Yes. So Hoffa also explained that he could not have been in the office on July 9th to see Dolokin Spindell put taps into the phones 
because he was at a Teamsters convention in Seattle that day. And mm-hmm. the alibi was backed up by a slew of witnesses, like almost two dozen witnesses, to the point where the prosecution had to concede he was in Seattle. Mm-hmm. In other words, these weren't like just like obvious paid witnesses or whatever. Like they they seemed like credible people who were just mm-hmm. there at the Teamsters convention in Seattle and saw Hoffa there. So the prosecution midway through the trial was forced to just admit, okay, Hoffa was in Seattle on July 9th, but our state trooper witness is not lying because maybe he could have flown back in time. Okay, yeah. And maybe our own witness was mistaken about the time of day that this right. task were put in you, the phone. And you also kind of would have figured that, you would have figured that the get Hoffa people would have gotten their ducks more in a row before going ahead with this. So I guess any kind of trial is also just such an inconvenience. Yeah. Right? That's kind of the principle behind the concept of lawfare, right? It's right. just inconvenient and expensive and uh, it gets your you get associated with bad press yeah and and i I mean each trial like is also supposed to get exactly like wear down the image of hoffa as a working man guy instead make him into a creepy wiretapping guy Mm -hmm. but yeah that doesn't work here he's acquitted yeah not guilty not guilty y'all got to feel him done interestingly for as kind of a preview of future trials a juror comes forward right after this trial saying that a labor reporter attempted to contact her during the trial. Like how did he get the juror's name and so on? And that raised the specter of jury tampering by Hoffa. I really don't believe that Hoffa tampered with this jury. I find that very hard to believe because his defense in this case is so strong. Mm -hmm. The prosecution literally rests on, if you break it down, just the testimony of one guy who may have been employed by them like we don't really know mm-hmm. and it's a solid alibi like mm-hmm. it's that's a that's a walk mm. So in between, like, so after trial number two that we're at here now, Hoffa has the 
formal conference on transportation unity, which we spoke about earlier. He invited the ILW guys, Harry Bridges people, the leaders of the ILA, the hyper-blacklisted National Maritime Union, which had its own communist membership mm -hmm. and had its own officers repeatedly prosecuted for alleged Soviet ties and alleged espionage. Mm -hmm. And uh, those guys actually were represented by a guy named Lee Pressman, um, who was himself accused of being a communist fellow traveler and was actually a friend of Alger Hiss. Oh, wow. So Hoffa is like, no, I love these people. Like, let's, let's unite transportation. Mm -hmm. Leading up to the conference, Hoffa likened the power, and I love this, Hoffa likened the power to shut down transportation in a national transportation strike to a, quote, atomic bomb. Oh, wow. Which he said shouldn't be used. Right. You need it as a debtor. Yeah. Hoffa believes in deterrence. So I wonder, in that metaphor, what's second strike capacity? <laughs> because on the one hand, you want second strike capacity in order to win wars, but you also don't want to develop it because then they, the other side will use its atomic bombs on you before you develop second strike, or else you have to develop it really, really fast. You know, nuclear <laughs> strategy is more is closer to theology than anything else. But True. So Hoffa simultaneously had this going, along with a thrust towards global transportation unity, where he was trying to bring in maritime and transportation unions from as far away as England and France and mm. Italy mm. and so on, using... Harold Gibbons and Edward Chaffis, both former communists, yeah. as his face, as his diplomats, as it were, going abroad. Mm -hmm. This prompted a special emergency McClellan Committee report of heightened urgency called, quote, Alliance of Certain Racketeer and Communist-Dominated Unions as a Threat to National Security. Mm -hmm. They saw this conference on transportation unity and this linking up of Hoffa with these forces essentially is, is something like a fifth column threat in the event of a war. At least they tried to hype it up that way because they were, I I think unquestionably, regardless of whether there was like a war with the Soviet Union or China or something like that, they were scared about the ability of this group of people to extract concessions mm. economy-wide. Mm. Frankly, had the transportation unity thing gone through, I think we would be looking at a very different United States today. Oh, yeah. This all brings us, though, Hoffa at the height of his power. And now RFK and the Get Hoffa squad are officially on the case. Mm -hmm. These previous attorney, these previous trials have been kind of like duds. They weren't well coordinated, but there was no Get Hoffa squad at the mm -hmm. DOJ with millions of dollars at its disposal, unlimited transportation budgets, unlimited FBI budgets, and so on. The first test of that is in October of 1962 with mm. trial number three, the test fleet case. Mm. This is also referred to as the Nashville trial because it mm. happens in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm. Nashville, Tennessee being chosen as the uh, the forum, as they say in this case, the court where the case is indicted and tried mm -hmm. was very much suspected. And I think it's kind of obvious that at this point, the Kennedys, they, they tried cases in DC before a mostly black jury tried cases in Michigan before a jury full of, you know, union members, union backers, and also African-Americans mm -hmm. suspicious of this case against Jimmy Hoffa. And now they want a more sympathetic audience. Mm. Now, they're not going to try to go all the way to the Jim Crow South and open themselves up for charges mm -hmm. that... They're yeah. just trying to rig a, a the bullshit south, You know, Nashville, the, the down-to city to, to hate. Yeah. Which I think Atlanta also called itself. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Both, 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 I think, call themselves that. Yeah. Al Gore senior country. 
Mm. Yeah. So this case was a misdemeanor. It was a federally charged misdemeanor. This has this is like the most expensive misdemeanor fucking case that's mm-hmm. ever been tried. I repeat, it was a misdemeanor. Is it is it actually officially the most expensive misdemeanor? It I'm might sure be. In... As far as federal cases, honestly, this might be the most expensive misdemeanor trial ever tried. Particularly yeah. if you throw in the follow-up case, the Chattanooga trial. Right, yeah. This case also appears to have been a trap. And to kind of pull back for a second, the strange thing about this trial and the follow-up trial is there it's kind of like all the rules of legal decorum are being observed, right? But the machinery underneath is actually what's driving the mm-hmm. show. And that machinery underneath is just a, a layer of spies and wiretaps mm-hmm. and recordings and basically pressured and intimidated witnesses all going from the government to Hoffa, not really going the other way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ironic part is that this case, this test fleet trial, it's a misdemeanor and a little bit of a spoiler, Hoffa gets a mistrial out of it. The, the jury split, but the allegation for his next trial is that he tampered with the jury of the test fleet trial. Mm. So these are two connected trials, one of which is this bullshit misdemeanor case, and we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. And the other is the much more serious felony allegation of jury tampering on the the much more serious allegation of tampering with the jury of this misdemeanor case. Mm-hmm. That allegation of jury tampering is a felony that, if convicted, would necessarily mean that Hoffa, right. under the rules of the union, can't be the head of the union anymore. So they they were reason they they must have felt reasonably confident that he would commit some offense like this. Yeah. Uh, over the course of this, over the course of this uh, this misdemeanor trial. Yeah, and uh, by commit the offense, I mean did everything to make that or the appearance of that happen. Mm-hmm. Because this trial was basically a sting that looked like a trial. Hmm. Do we have like testimony to that from any of the people involved? Like, is that something they admit to? So there's bits and pieces that are admitted to. And William Tabak in his book, Rise and Fall of Tommy Osborne, Hmm. has been really good. And and also he got a hold of grand jury testimony Hmm. on it. His book was very good at finding people afterwards, including the lead prosecutors, who admitted that they did things that were illegal. Mm-hmm. No one just out and out said, oh yeah, like we didn't we didn't think we'd win the test fleet trial. Like we didn't really care if we won the test fleet trial because it was actually all just a sting mm-hmm. to get Hoffa for jury tampering. Yeah. But, and it's entirely possible that, you know, these prosecutors involved in the test fleet case really just wanted to hit Hoffa with everything. And that Walter Sheridan took this as an opportunity to create the witnesses as it were to manufacture the witnesses who will be later used right. for the jury tampering yes. trial okay no it's confusing but that is the thing here is that this trial was kind of just a trap that Hoffman and his lawyers walked into it's hard to see how they would walk out to talk about the test fleet case itself first it's important to note that this crime that's being charged is a violation of the much hated taft hartley act uh This is probably the most hated piece of legislation in American labor history. We talked about it already. It prohibits secondary boycotts, Mm -hmm. sympathy strikes, political strikes. It's bad. Mm. But this part of the Taft-Hartley Act isn't so bad, except for the potential ammunition that it gives a prosecutor. That's how these laws really function, especially for a federal prosecutor, is Mm. they're just ammunition to construct a case on. Mm -hmm. It's very postmodern. 
Hoffa has his own hired gun for this trial, uh, and really one that is as respectable, at least in Tennessee, as you know anyone from Edward Bennett Williams' firm. That is this guy, Z.T. Tommy Osborne. He fought a case called Baker versus Carr, which is legendary in the Supreme Court jurisprudence. It shapes everything about how people are representing the United States today. Mm -hmm. um, prior to Baker versus Carr and Tommy Osborne's uh, suit that brought this about, individual states like Tennessee or Texas or New York could have their districts shaped and grouped with as many or as few people as they wanted to. Hmm. So you could have like the Tennessee Senate with, you know, 20 districts that represent all of 200 people and maybe just a bunch of cows. Yeah. But that they're the majority right. over places like Nashville yes. and Memphis that have a lot more people. Mm -hmm. And this was, of course, very much used by Jim Crow states right. to just district and, out. And you, and, you could see, and you could see how they would get there because they could say, well, the United States, we do the same thing. Yeah. Right. These districts are the same as the states of the United States. Right. They represent these. Uh, I I always wondered at the logic of bicameral state legislators mm. because like, OK, in Britain, you have two houses because they're two different, originally two different estates of the realm, the aristocracy and the commons. Mm. Then in the U.S. Constitution, you have two houses because one of them is supposed to represent that this country is an alliance of states or was circa 1787. Yeah, and not to get too far off track, like they were, you know, these states were able to point at the United States Senate right. and say, that's not a one person, one vote place. Yeah. You know, Wyoming, population 600,000, right. has the same votes as population of, of California, population like 35, yeah. 40 million. Yeah. You know, which is, which is, which so, makes their votes count less. Right. But at least there was at one point a pretense that the different states really were states. Mm -hmm. Whereas what's the pretense? Like no one thinks the counties, maybe in some states, but nobody thinks that like the counties of Massachusetts are like these semi-independent, like what? Like, like, I just yeah. don't get it. Like the, Well, it, it, it's, it's the pretext of power, right? right yeah, it, it allows a legislator to be, you know, in their wielding power, wielding committee appointments with the votes of like 300 people, mm -hmm. whereas someone in Nashville has to get the vote of like 30,000, mm -hmm. right? And Tommy Osborne brought a suit before Judge Miller in the Nashville court, mm -hmm. who ultimately is the judge on the Hoffa Test Fleet trial. Mm -hmm. And that lawsuit goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court and the halo on top of them, Warren Court at the time mm -hmm. said, yeah, this doesn't make sense that these, the, you know, cowpoke bumfuck districts yeah. are getting the same amount of legislators mm -hmm. as much larger urban populations. Yeah. Instead, state districts should have approximately equal populations. Yeah. And unfortunately, we don't have the United States with the Senate, which explains a lot of the conservative politics mm -hmm. of the country. Yeah. But Tommy Osborne wanted the state. So you have one person, one vote at the state level because of Tommy Osborne. Mm -hmm. He was also chair of the Bar Association in Nashville and literally the most aggressive young lawyer anyone could find in Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, pretty like gray bar. He immediately objected to something that happened at the very beginning of this Tesla trial, which is the potential jury list barely included any women or black people. Mm -hmm. And we're about to talk about why that is. Mm -hmm. We should probably talk about first, though, uh, what the allegations were in the Tesla case. What did they say Hoffa did? Mm -hmm. And I will be first to say that there is like something 
to the test fleet allegations is yeah. not as much as commentators, including in Jacobin magazine, mm. have said who following the lead of calling you out. Yeah. Calling you out, Jack. Yeah, they they kind of followed the lead of Dan Day on this without citing anything mm. real. Uh yeah. Day is the Hoffa Wars. Mm-hmm. So Hoffa in the test fleet case is charged with soliciting accepting payments from a car moving company, mm. a trucking company that moves cars that the Teamsters organized called commercial carriers. Mm-hmm. And they supposedly made these payments through a sort of dummy pass-through company, a phony company that was in the names of Hoffa's wife, as well as the wife of his friend and you know day one homie, Owen Burt Brennan. Mm-hmm. In return, Hoffa supposedly guaranteed commercial carriers labor piece, meaning, hey, you're giving me a, a, a cut of your profits. Mm-hmm. I won't ever authorize a strike against commercial carriers. Mm-hmm. That was the premise of the test fleet case. In other words, Hoffa had commercial carriers pay him off in order that the drivers for commercial carriers wouldn't go on strike. This all happened like in the late 40s, early 50s, the allegation. The mm-hmm. test fleet trial is happening in 62, but they they say that the offense was going on as long as Hoffa still had this dummy company operating in his mm-hmm. wife's name, mm-hmm. uh, Josephine Hoffa. Mm-hmm. That dummy company was called Test Fleet, mm-hmm. hence the Test Fleet trial. Not that they were testing what yeah. they were doing, even though arguably maybe they were. Yeah, kind of they were, right? So the, the setting here, as I said, is important. Bobby Kennedy's Ken Hoffa squad went to Tennessee because they thought it was the best venue because it's a soft apartheid, rough justice type state, Um, but not so deep in the South as to raise eyebrows of liberals back home. He could ensure that he wouldn't get like the DC type jury that Walter Sheridan said was the reason that they lost the bribery trial Mm -hmm. and not because it was a stupid case. Right. Now, the jury selection system in Tennessee in this part of Tennessee in particular, was uniquely bad. It was called the key man system. The key man system is like a remnant of like old burgers controlling the city, the walled yeah, city. Yeah. Uh, it's basically local notables of unimpeachable reputation mm-hmm. select a list of people that they believe to be people of good moral character in the community to be potential jurors on any case. Uh-huh. So it's literally like people they know, right? And have decided are are good enough in yeah, the, the in the view people. of like in a view of like like wealthy people and government officials, right? The good burgers, yeah, the good burgers of you know still Jim Crow era Nashville, right. Tennessee. Oof, yeah. So you have a bunch of like like basically wealthy white people and and white officials, all men, mm-hmm. you know, some of them probably like burning crosses in their spare time, right? Who build lists of people that they trust to run trials Mm -hmm. as the way that they think trials should be run. Mm -hmm. And that is the list of potential jurors that the federal court in Nashville is going to like try this case on Mm -hmm. and try Hoffa on. From the beginning, Tommy Osborne objected that this key man system is insufficient to represent the community of Nashville. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's much more litigation on this like after this case mm-hmm. but obviously he was right mm-hmm. and i they did bring in basically one black man mm-hmm. onto the jury mm-hmm. onto the hava jury and then as we'll talk about in just a sec here uh walter sheridan threw a scheme had him thrown up mm-hmm. so, 
And I know I mentioned this is a misdemeanor. The maximum sentence on this case was two years and twenty thousand dollars, which for Hoffa is like nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, probably be like a suspended sentence. Mm -hmm. But back to describing what the evidence was in the Thespley case. I'm as I said. This is supposed to be about a payoff for labor peace. So like, how was the payoff carried out, right? Hoffa and his, you know, day one guy, Owen Burt Brennan, they set up a truck leasing company that's nominally in their wife's names called Tesfleet, which they later renamed Hobren, like Hoffa and Brennan. Mm. It's not exactly secret right. here. Um, side note, uh, Hoffa did this after specifically talking to his lawyer about mm -hmm. whether it would be legally permissible to do business with commercial carriers given that the teamsters organized them. And his lawyer said, yes. Uh -huh. So Testfleet, this company set up in Hoffa's wife's name, was then supplied with a set of about a half dozen trucks from commercial carriers, as in commercial carriers, the company that the teamsters organized, yeah. gave to Testfleet, like gratis. Right, to a company that Hoffa and his friend made. Yes. Now, Testfleet then leases those trucks back mm -hmm. to commercial carriers. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, thank you for giving us these trucks. We're going to lease them back to you for your use. Mm -hmm. And those trucks are then leased out for commercial carriers' most expensive operation, which is taking like new Mercedes, not Mercedes, uh, Cadillacs mm -hmm. from Detroit out of uh, the factory and then driving them down to places like Tennessee, Right. Tennessee being one of those places that commercial carriers took the cars down to, they then become the venue of the Tesla trial. Mm -hmm. Now, the fun thing about this scheme is that those trucks like literally never left commercial carriers, mm -hmm. right? Nor would they have to. The commercial carriers basically transferred the ownership of the trucks to Tesla, the company, and then paid Tesfleet for the lease that Tesfleet generously gave to commercial carriers. Yeah. So it's just a really just off the top mm. cut. Yeah. Like the trucks never changed hands. They still right. have the same drivers. They never left commercial carriers. Tesfleet basically just exists as like an office yeah. and an accountant. Right. To, to take this kind of rake off yeah. and make it look legal or make it look legit. Yeah. And I mean, here's the thing. Uh, commercial carriers is completely within their rights to do this bullshit payment mm -hmm. as everybody paid taxes right, on yeah. this scheme. Everything was legally filed. Right. Uh, Hoffa checked with his lawyers uh, to but see. Taft -Hartley. Yeah. But Taft Hartley prohibits a payoff exchange for labor peace of this kind. Yes. And Hoffa himself is prohibited mm -hmm. from receiving payments mm. of any kind from an employer he organized mm -hmm. like any gifts or anything like that yeah so he can't set up this company in his own name it's in his wife's name mm -hmm. so much of the evidence kind of turned on demolishing hoffa's first line of defense that this company was set up as a nest egg for his wife in case something should happen to him and in which neither hoffa nor his wife really participated in day to day mm -hmm. the prosecutors put in witness after witness and document after document to show a flow of money through a chain of transactions from Tesfleet, this company, to James Hoffa's own assets. Mm -hmm. And there are three examples that they really took a while to put in, but eventually did put in. So they brought into evidence two dividend checks. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on owning your Tesfleet stock, Mrs. Hoffa, your share in the company. Right. Uh, they're for $5,000 each issued to Josephine Hoffa. And those were exchanged for two cashier's checks 
amounting to about $9,800 at a bank in Detroit. The cashier's checks, if you're keeping up with this, Mm -hmm. were then deposited into the account of the McDonald brokerage firm. And then the brokerage firm then immediately bought 8,000 shares of stock in a company and 7,000 of those shares were then reassigned to James P. Hoffa, Hoffa's son. Mm -hmm. The inference that they wanted the jury to take from that is that this company wouldn't have done that, cashing out the shares from Josephine Hoffa and then transferring those shares, all these transactions to Jimmy Hoffa's son, unless Jimmy Hoffa, big Jimmy Hoffa, Mm -hmm. was asking them to. Mm -hmm. That was somewhat unclear, you know? Yeah. Why couldn't it just be like, mom says, here you go, right, little Jimmy. Yeah, you're my son. Yeah. In another instance, they showed that another two $5,000 dividend checks for Mrs. Brennan, mm-hmm. the other listed owner of Tesla, were deposited into a joint checking account that she held with her husband, mm-hmm. Owen Burt Brennan. Days later, out of that same checking account, a check was written to purchase $9,900 of stock in equal amounts for Burt Brennan and Jimmy Hoffa. So that's a little bit more. It goes into this joint pile of money. And then two days later, an almost equivalent amount of money comes out and buys stuff for Jimmy Hoffa. Mm-hmm looks more like an account that he's using or a pass-through, as they say. But the most on-point evidence that prosecutors were able to put in showed that proceeds from Tesla in the uh, from that same joint checking account from Owen Brennan were then put into the account of another company that used them to pay Jimmy and Josephine's joint taxes for one year. Okay. So money goes into Burt Brennan's joint checking account with his wife, and then it comes out goes to another company, and then that company pays Hoffa's taxes. Okay. But the defense still has an argument here, which is basically like a shrug, Yeah. right? It's like, so money from my wife's company and my own money got commingled, And mm-hmm. my mon- money from Bert Brennan's wife's company and his money got commingled. Like, we're married. What do you want? Right, yeah. So what? You can't charge a husband and wife for the same crime. <laughs> Sorry, that's from Arrested Development. The second real set of evidence came from commercial carriers like the company mm-hmm. itself, because the real issue here is quid pro quo, namely like did commercial carriers like paid this money to Test Fleet, but like did they do an exchange for a labor piece or just because they like like Test Fleet? Right. And the head of commercial carriers, Ben Breverage, said that in the midst of a strike in 1948. He met with Hoffa twice and Hoffa said, basically, um, I can solve your labor problem. Mm. And he did by unionizing commercial carriers uh, after he consulted with this and consulted with a person Hoffa told him to consult with. Mm -hmm. And then after that second meeting, he had him meet up with or had him uh, propose to him doing business with Test Fleet, his Mm -hmm. new company. Yeah. Or his lawyer proposed that he do business with Tesla in his new company. Mm. Uh, so it's like kind of, yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the jury deadlocked on this. They had seven okay. jurors vote not guilty, five vote guilty. The mm. result, when you have that kind of a deadlock that they can't work past is a mistrial. It mm. gives the prosecutor an opportunity to try the case again. Mm. And in Tesla, they did not do that because they got a much, much juicier thing out of this trial, which is, during the trial, not only did they the prosecution have a spy planted in Hoffa's defense camp, mm. they also had multiple jury tampering allegations happen during the trial. Mm-hmm. So three jury tampering allegations occurred during the course of the case. And the collective impression 
these allegations left, particularly on the judge, was that if Hoffa wasn't convicted, these seven people voted for acquittal, it must have been because, you know, we found a little bit of smoke. There must be mm. fire in that jury. And those jurors may have very well been paid off. Mm. The strange part about the tamperings, though, is they all, all except one occurred before the jurors were seated. So before they were even guaranteed to be on the jury. Okay. In other words, two of these jury tampering allegations were on people who were not on the jury. Okay. In which no guy bribing them could have known right. would What's be on the jury. Hmm. And uh, before we get into that jury tampering trial, maybe it's some take break. Yeah. So we might be taking a longer break than uh, anticipated as we are both hungry. Yeah. But before we do, I wanted to address one more thing on the test fleet case and the whole test fleet allegations, which is the thing that Jackman got wrong following mm -hmm. Lena Damble yeah. I did a lot of looking into this because one of the things that kind of like great sins that uh, several people have pointed to, like prospective writers that Jimmy Hoffa did is they said that test fleet, the company, uh, when commercial carriers went on strike, ran trucks mm. to basically scab on the wildcat strike of the commercial carriers' workers. Mm. The problem with that is I can find no proof evidence of that yeah. at all. And it doesn't seem to make any sense Where to me. Where do the allegations come from? Um, they all seem to stem from uh, Dan Day's book, The Hoffa Wars, where he said that explicitly. Okay, did he cite anyone? Couldn't find it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the the real, like, the skepticism about this allegation should come from the fact that Test Fleet consisted of six trucks that right. were just in the expense, most expensive operation. Yeah, you can't scab the whole thing with just six. That commercial carriers had. Yeah, they, these, these trucks, which were never in, like, a Test Fleet garage or at a Test Fleet lot and yeah. had no drivers that worked for Test Fleet, there were yeah. no drivers that worked for Test Fleet, mm -hmm. they all just... Like they were just leased out. Test Fleet was a leasing corporation that leased the trucks. Right. And all of, it seems to really have just functioned as like a payoff mechanism. So mm -hmm. I don't see how they could have scabbed on anything, much less the operations of something like commercial carriers. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it was just kind of made up. Yeah. I was confused. But uh, let's take a big break. Yeah. about this JFK worship of yours. What about Hoffa and the Teamsters? That was their brother. 